Well, we are now in the wilderness with Jesus, folks. We've crossed that Lenten threshold. And we're shadowing Jesus really, really closely. That's what we're trying to do. These are necessary days right now. They prepare us for Holy Week. And then that essential week prepares us for Easter Sunday. So as we inhabit these wilderness days, I'm always wondering, what does Jesus want to teach us? What does he want to teach us? What does he want to do with us in these rather intense 40 days? Our little sojourn. That's kind of a kind way to put it. What does he want to do? What is the wilderness way of our Lord right now? Let's find out. We need Mark 8, 31 through 38. To catch you up just a little bit, because we're constantly entering into the scriptures, or often entering in midstream, Jesus is already in deep conversation with the 12 disciples. And they're actually en route somewhere. They're going to Caesarea Philippi. So they're traveling, okay? Uh, they're having what my daughter Ava and I call a, a walk and talk. Jesus does this a lot. He travels, and they talk, and they discuss things as they're going to and fro. Wouldn't you love to know all those conversations he and the disciples had when they're going back and forth because they travel so much by foot. And the rabbi Jesus, again, right before this, he is asking his disciples some questions about his identity. So he begins here. He essentially says, okay, guys, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And the answer, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say, uh, you know, you're one of the prophets. Now, before we, you know, get on the disciples here, those aren't bad guesses. Those are actually pretty good guesses. Jesus definitely resembled the great prophets. And if you look at how he handled himself and how he spoke of the imminent kingdom of God, not bad guesses. And he says, what about, what about you, though? Who do you say that I am? And we know that famous confession that Peter offers. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And that's a title that means God's anointing one. This is a person who's chosen by God to save his people and then some. Jesus answers correctly, and, or Peter does, rather, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. There's always a little perplexing, right? It's called the messianic secret. It's not time yet for the Son of Man to be revealed. It's not time yet. Uh, though we're not told exactly why Jesus doesn't want his identity revealed at that point in time, my guess is that the disciples, they just don't understand enough about what he meant just yet. It wasn't time yet. The scriptures say that in other places. He's not going to let them loose on the world just yet. They have a very embryonic knowledge of who he is, and that's probably not real smart, right? I don't think they were ready, and they still lacked much, as later passages in Mark will prove in terms of how they handled themselves. So our passage today begins with Jesus, the rabbi Messiah, teaching the twelve what's to come. We kind of make the shift, and we're talking as we're moving to he teaches them. The text makes it really clear. And what he teaches them about is about his identity and his mission. First few verses. Two basic chunks. 31 to 33 and then 34 to 38. So he's traveling. They're traveling. Talking to his disciples. This is to the 12. Okay. First few verses. This is the first of three salvos that Mark's going to make in 8 through 10. And Jesus is going to talk really clearly about the kind of Messiah that he is. He's going to speak of his mission. He's going to speak of his identity in these terms. Suffering, rejection, subsequent death, and then resurrection. And as I said, he teaches them these things. There's something they need to know that they don't know yet. There's something they're ignorant of that they don't know. This is some sort of virgin terrain for their hearts and their minds as well. So Jesus is going to teach them. And again, this is the first salvo of three. 
that happen in these three chapters in Mark. So Jesus keeps it, keeps it simple and he sticks to the basics. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The first thing out of his mouth is, is suffering. First thing, how Jesus self-identifies. The Son of Man. I'm a suffering Messiah. This is Isaiah 53, left, right, and center. There's no mention of the cross yet. But all we know is this is a suffering unto death. He says he will die. Okay? That's the first thing. He also speaks of rejection. The Son of Man, again, how he self-identifies, is going to face rejection by three groups. The elders, these are the senior Jewish lay leaders. Okay? The chief priests, guys like me, self-explanatory, and the scribes, these are the biblical scholars, the academics. They all make up the Sanhedrin. You've probably heard that word before. They are the three main players that make that up. And in Jewish life, nobody had more political or spiritual power than that group. They were the religious establishment. Very powerful in Jewish life. And they were often rivals and at odds with each other on different issues, but they would unite against Jesus, as we know, which is worth noting. The reason for their rejection when they say this, they reject him, and what they're saying literally is that Jesus does not pass muster, or that he fails under some scrutiny. That's what the word means. It's a fascinating term. Those three groups are going to scrutinize Jesus, judge one of their own, and intentionally they're going to reject him. This is not the Messiah they want. It's not, Jesus is not who they expected. So their rejection, his subsequent suffering, and death will happen because Jesus' rescue mission upsets the apple cart of the Sanhedrin's authority, okay? Jesus upsets the status quo. That's true in every day and age. He rocks the boat of the religious establishment of his day and age. So he's not iconoclast. He's a heretic. He's a revolutionary. He is a troublemaker in their eyes. Now, this is more than a little ironic since Jesus' radical compassion for all the outliers of society, right, the marginalized, the broken, that was always a concern to God. Always. This was always to be part of Israel's calling. Jesus reminds them of that. And I think in a sense, he shines a bright light on that area of failure and the Sanhedrin's lack of compassion. And they come after him. So suffering, rejection, uh, rejection, and death. And after three days, he says, the Son of Man will rise again. Now, we understand what Jesus means. We get that. Resurrection. Uh, the disciples didn't. Every indication is they didn't quite get that. It's really doubtful they understood what he meant. Later in Mark 9, it says they're puzzling over what this might mean. They don't get it. I have to wonder if Jesus is intentionally painting with really broad brushstrokes here. It's the first time he's spoken of these weighty matters to the disciples. This is the first time. So he's wading into those deep waters, maybe one step at a time, perhaps. Don't know. But even so, he doesn't speak in parables here. The text says he spoke clearly. He's very straightforward. The disciples must get this. They must, must understand this. So let's recap. The Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, and will die, and then rise again after three days, which they don't quite understand what he's talking about. It is more than accurate to say that that is not good news to the disciples. That isn't like, right on, Jesus. Cool, that's exactly what I want to hear. No, this is not good news. This is terrible news. Jesus is violating their expectations as to the kind of Christ he is. A suffering, rejected, dead Christ? Like, what? Peter, 
unsurprisingly, uh, will have none of us. So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. I wish I could give you the energy of that word rebuke. <laughs> it is so intense and it is so, this is a very heated encounter. It's not like, hey Jesus, that, I mean, it, it is, to rebuke someone is, <clears throat> is really forceful. Same word is used when Jesus rebukes or silences demonic spirits. That gives you an idea. Pretty hardcore. Shut up, Jesus. That cannot be. No, this will never happen. That's not, not unlike saying that. So Peter goes toe-to-toe with Jesus on this. And he gets in his face over it. The Matthew 16 account tells us this is what Peter said. Far be it from me, Lord. This shall never happen to you which is a line similar to what Peter will say later on about the crucifixion. Jesus, I don't know if Peter expected this, Jesus responds in kind, like a gale force wind. He rebukes Peter, same word, still intense, still uh, very heated. And I want to say this, in doing so, he makes absolutely certain that the other disciples catch this. The text says, but turning and singing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So while this is a rebuke for Peter, he's often the spokesman for them, for the disciples. He wants the disciples to get this too. They must understand this. They must get it. This is a lesson for all of the 12. And he says, get behind me, Satan, exclamation point. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling Peter Satan. Boy, a lot's been written about that. Jesus, isn't that just way too harsh? This is too much. Why is it so harsh? And it is harsh, by the way. We can't take the edges off of that one. It just is. Why equate Peter and Satan? Here's why. Peter was offering Jesus the same easy way out that the devil did in the wilderness. The Messiah, he doesn't have to suffer, much less die. The cross isn't really necessary. It can be bypassed. So that was the devil's final temptation, as you recall, with Jesus. He offered him a crown, but you didn't really have to do the cross to get that crown. So Jesus' rebuke here of Peter is swift, it is forceful, and yeah, it is harsh. It's as rough as any rebuke he ever utters. And I'm taking into account things he said against Pharisees and Sadducees. It's hardcore. Though well-intentioned, and we know the road to somewhere is paved with good intentions, Peter sees Jesus with human eyes. He's looking at this Messiah with human eyes. He doesn't understand what Jesus the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are up to here. He doesn't see the rescue plan that actually entails a suffering Messiah, the only way that we can be saved and redeemed. He doesn't see that. The things that God values, which Peter's missing, are self-sacrifice and service to others, laying down your life, which the Son of Man came to do. We humans value things more like self-preservation, safety, personal prestige, comfort, stability. The disciples will prove this exact point numerous times in Mark. Not too long after this, they're going to jockey for positions of power and influence in God's kingdom. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who can sit your right and your left? I mean, they go for this. God's kingdom is radically, diametrically opposed to how we tend to operate. These are kingdoms in conflict. Or as, as Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So Jesus' fiery rebuke makes sense. Now having rebuked Peter and sort of learned all the disciples, Jesus pivots and he begins to teach about these two paths before us, the way of the cross and the way of the world. This is verses 34 to 38. And he turns his attention to the crowds. I don't know what happens there. I don't know if they arrive in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus then brings them into the larger discussion. I don't know if as they're traveling, they've gathered people. It's not really clear, but he opens up the discussion to the crowds, not just to the disciples. This is for everyone now. And he essentially says, look, if you're going to call me master and rabbi, okay, this is the path you'll follow too. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve self-sacrifice and service of others. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Very famous words. I mean, this is the cost of discipleship, which Bonhoeffer wrote about so powerfully. And it's not just a metaphor for, hey, you might have a little suffering in this life, or, ah, you might have some discomfort or some hardship. The cross meant you might actually lose your life to follow Jesus. Have a real martyrdom. This isn't just theoretical. Jesus is now speaking with clarity about the cross, his crucifixion here. And this was a shameful humiliating way to die. And later on, Peter will follow Jesus to death on a cross. Tradition holds that he was crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified as his Lord was. Now, you probably know a lot of the words from this passage by heart, those paradoxical words, right? The, you're going to lose your life to save it. You're going to save your life to lose it. This sounds very sort of zen and sagacious. But Jesus isn't being obtuse here. He's being very practical. He, he literally means these things. He's not being cryptic. These are very demanding words. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to lay it down. If you lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, text says, you'll be saved. Death to self, followed by being raised up in Christ Jesus. That's the symbolism we see in baptism. Okay? Death of the old man or the old woman, going down into the water, into the depths, into death, uh, to be raised up in Jesus to new life. That's the coming up out of the water, having been washed clean, uh, being given new life. So the choice Jesus offers, you can live for yourself, you can do that, and die. Or you can die to yourself, follow me, and then truly live. Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? It's just that simple. That's the choice. Now, did you also catch the mention of the gospel there? I did highlight it briefly. Whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Uh, you evidently cannot separate the person of Jesus from his gospel. The message is the medium and vice versa. So being devoted to Jesus means being devoted to the gospel. It's just a, a package deal. So Jesus gets even more practical here. And he gives us a metaphor. He talks about profits and gains and losses and forfeiture. Uh, this is verse uh, 36, 37. What for what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Uh, for what can someone give in return <clears throat> for his soul? This is the language of the marketplace. Business is business language. It's the language of commerce. And he's talking in a language that a tradesman or a fisherman or a farmer or shop owner of that day would understand, right? These are business terms, everyday transactions, something they do all the time. And it's almost like Jesus is appealing to their business savvy in some ways. Look at the long game, guys. 
And look at your long-term strategy, folks. What do you value? What do you value? Jesus values the human soul. Some translations say life. You see life or soul, they're both fine. Jesus values the human soul, human life above all else. He knows its eternal worth. He knows this. And only he knows at this point in the story, certainly, that we've been bought and ransomed at a price that we can't even calculate in earthly terms. Do we value human life similarly? That's a very fair question. Because Jesus does. Isn't someone's soul worth far more than anything else in the world? Your soul, my soul. Jesus isn't just talking about other people. He's talking about you too. Don't forfeit it. Don't hand it over. Don't allow others to waste their lives and to perish. He's posing a pretty incredible, I think, compassionate question here. How can you put a price on a human life, on a human soul? And can't you hear the inestimable value he puts on one single person? He says this knowing that we aren't in a position to ransom ourselves out of captivity. He knows this. He says this knowing that we cannot do it. We're in a, that puts us in a real bind, a real spiritual and a real existential dilemma unless you take the way of the cross and you lose your life to find it. Or I should say, to be found in Jesus. So two choices Jesus is highlighting. One, you can focus on the here and now, right here. You can kind of take the world at face value, the world as we presently see it. You can invest your soul and your life in what you can touch, taste, see, smell, and hear. You can get that comfort and stability. You can do that. But you will lose your soul and your life in the end. Folks, that is so unspeakably tragic and sad. Or you can play the long game. You can play the one that's rooted in eternity, and you can follow me, and you can take up your cross. You will sacrifice much in this life, maybe even your actual life in martyrdom, but you will gain everything, Jesus says. And let me say this, Jesus is rooting for us in this. I hope you know that. He's saying, your soul, your life is of eternal worth to me. Please choose well how you spend it and what you do with it. Passage concludes with these words. Everything here is very weighty. Forever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this theme of shame, very much in line with what Jesus shared about the cross, alluding to crucifixion. Because again, that was a most shameful, humiliating way to die in public, especially to a Jew. Shame and honor, those are incredibly powerful, powerful forces in the ancient Near East. It had cultural currency. Very strong, very potent, very powerful. There are entire books written about honor and shame in that culture and day. Big deal. It governed so very much. So Jesus is again underscoring a couple of different paths here. My way and there's the other way. <laughs> you can choose worldly honor. You can seek out that honor. You can avoid shame, which much of life was geared around that in the ancient Near East, avoiding shame. And you would spend your life literally trying to climb the social ladder to greater and greater positions of honor. It's all those passages about, I want to sit in a seat of honor. I want to sit to the right or to the left. Those are honor positions. Most people spent their lives avoiding shame and seeking out that honor. Most people did. Jesus is saying, well, you choose that way. 
Is that the way you're going to go? Will you just kind of go with the flow and do the status quo thing? Or will you endure the shame of the world because of me? Are you willing to endure the shame of the world for the sake of other people? Will you do that? Will you bear witness? Will you testify? It's the way of the cross. He's speaking the language of testimony here. Right? He's talking about being a witness in our brief earthly life. Will we speak with the whole of our lives, not just our mouths, of Jesus and his gospel? Will we do that? Or will we keep our faith to ourselves and because we fear ridicule or chastisement or even persecution? Will we live that harmless, provincial, privatized Christian life? And it doesn't really make any waves, doesn't ruffle any feathers, isn't willing to, so that we can have our spiritual cake and eat it too. Which, or so we think, because it really doesn't work. Will we sacrifice and risk our lives in order that others might know Jesus? How will they hear of him if we're too afraid or too ashamed to speak his name? Will we risk playing the fool? Will we? Will we speak of him with boldness, love, passion, conviction, even if the personal cost is high? Will we do that? Or will we be ashamed, and I'm speaking how Jesus means it here, we'll be ashamed of him. Will we choose a very safe, domesticated, and ultimately saltless faith? I mean, these are weighty things. And these are the uncompromising questions Jesus is, is asking and putting to the disciples and to the crowds. And he's asking those demanding questions of us as well. So for centuries, the church has been spoken of as an ark. And I think I've talked to you guys about this before. Uh, as in a boat, as in yes, yes, Noah and the ark. A, a battleship, if you will, that's out on a rescue mission in the chaotic seas of human culture. And it's a salvific image, supposed to be, of people being saved from the waters of judgment. The church is out there trying to save them. Uh, we don't really have the benefit of this, but if you were, we were in an old cathedral, we could look up right now and we would see the ceiling and what it was to evoke to us was the hull of a ship. That's the whole point. We kind of can play and make that up with this space. Again, the church is an ark, right? Salvific image. Here's how someone recently described the church in the West. A cruise ship. Where people choose their desired religious amenities and where professionals, pastors and staff, are there to dole out their respective spiritual goods and services. Uh, I mean, that pains me to say that's fair. There's a degree to which that's really fair. I think that critique is true for a lot of American Christianity. I do. There are ways in which we're soft. We'll take the way of the cross if it doesn't cost us a whole lot. And frankly, our culture allows us, in a sense, to kind of do the Jesus American thing and without any conflicts. That's just not, <laughs> that's not the way the cross works. You can't have it all. That part of the American dream, that's not Christian. You can't have it all. You can't have Jesus in everything. It's just not how it works. Jesus himself will tell you, no, 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 no. The things Christian call self-denial and persecution, 
here in our nation. Ah, Lord have mercy. The thing that grieves me is I, I feel like we trivialize and we bring shame upon our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen as they face real dangers and real sufferings because of their faith. They are persecuted. Some places Christianity is illegal. It's criminal. They face ridicule. Yes, some of them do face martyrdom. Do you know how grateful they would be to have our dilemma of being able to just freely gather out here, even when it's cold, or to have easy access to worship online? They would kill for that dilemma. So I have to wonder if part of what the Lord might be doing with this during Lent is, I don't say toughening us up, but working our spiritual muscles. You know what I mean? I think there are some ways in which we're maybe soft and flabby and God's trying to get us in shape because there's some real work to be done. There's some real work to be done. I'm reminded of our, and I'm going to call him our spokesperson. Peter's our spokesperson, right? I'm reminded of him. He's, he's a great picture for me in this passage. And here's why I say that. Well, there's one moment he's confessing Jesus is the Christ, like right on. Well done. Like that's so good. And then the next, what is he doing? He's rebuking Jesus for the kind of Christ that he is. He's rebuking Jesus for being a Christ of the cross. Peter had to learn that being a Christian meant following Jesus into the wilderness and ultimately meant walking the way of the cross. He had to learn that. The path to resurrection, honor, and glory, we don't start there. It's real, but it begins in the wilderness. The way of the cross begins and that is a place of surrender and of giving up and of empty empty handedness here we are Lord so I want to give us two simple questions before we move into the prayers of the people and close and they are this where have you held on to your comfort instead of the cross where have you clung to your comfort instead of the cross that's the first question And the second is just a follow-up. Are you willing to lay it down? Are you willing to drop that and follow Jesus?